I'm your host, Brian Schechter, CEO and founder of SelfMade. We're back this week with Adam Schwartz of TeePublic for part two of our conversation. In this episode, Adam's going to expand on how he leverages community to drive growth for TeePublic, and we'll go deep into how you can leverage your most loyal customers to take your business to the next revenue benchmark you're looking to hit. I'll let Adam take it from here. Let's go to to TeePublic for a second. You never raised money. Nope. It's spun out of busted. Yep. How big did you grow it? Can you share how, how big it got before you sold? Before we sold, it it was it was uh, around forty million in revenue. Um, you know, and over over we, we've grown um, you know forty to fifty percent in in the year since. And forty uh, million revenue is that transactions on the site? Yeah, that that that's revenue on the site. We're we are. Um, we're unique as a marketplace because unlike an Amazon or an Etsy, you know, we are, we're producing all of the products. We're, we're making everything. So our take rate, uh, you know, we're paying the artists roughly 20%, you know, we're, we're paying to manufacture the goods, but I mean, we're, you know, if we if we do, uh, that revenue, I mean, it's, it's, that's our revenue. Um, we have costs obviously, but, but that's your revenue. Yeah. T public. What's the, what does it stand for? Because we it spun it out of Busted Tees, it started just as an experiment where we said, well, we have this brand, Busted Tees, you know, maybe we could build this platform to enable other, you know, artists to build their own versions of Busted Tees. We had fairly low aspirations for how large this would scale. We thought if we could get it to the size of Busted Tees, that'd be kind of a cool way to grow the business. Busted Tees at that time was like a five, six million dollar business. Yeah. The, the initial concept was... Before we started using digital printing, which is the technology that, that really powers TeePublic today and allowed it to scale because it, it, it enables us to not have inventory, artists can upload anything and we only produce it when it is sold on demand digitally. But it didn't begin that way. It began with traditional models, inventory, screen printing, and the way that it would work is like somebody would upload a design and if enough people sort of voted uh, with their wallets, it would, we, would, we would make it that, you know, sort of a, a crowdfunding model. And that's why it was called TeePublic because it was like a democratized t-shirt thing. Then it morphed into something totally different and, and it's really not a great name, particularly because we have like 75 different types of products on the site and home goods and different categories and, and you know, t-shirts is just a piece of it. But it, the business grew really quickly and by the time we realized that the name was a bit myopic, it was sort of too late. <laughs> What's what's next for you guys? I'd say there's sort of two uh, two big things. I mean, you know, T Public is is really uh, having it's scaling. Um, you know, it's 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 continuing. I mean, there's it's one thing to grow, you know, fifty or hundred percent when you're a five million dollar company. It's another thing to do it when when you're a fifty million dollar company. Yeah. And fortunately, you know, we've been able to to keep that growth going. Um, so as a group, uh, we we sort of you know, planted a flag in the ground and said, um, we want to build a unicorn together and we're going to take this to a billion. Um, and, and one of the primary ways uh, that, that we're going to do this, aside from continuing to nurture a creative community who's really at the core of, of driving that, is that creative community has always been inspired by pop culture, um, television and movies and video games and create artwork that, that is inspired by it. Um, which puts us at conflict historically with rights holders of that of that pop culture, um, and I would liken what is happening on our marketplace today is what was happening on Napster 
um, in the early 2000s. Um, but this content wants to get out. <laughs> um, and so what we're saying to rights holders now is, um, you know, there's an opportunity for you to participate in a licensed merchandise model that is driven by your fans. Um, your fans are creating the merchandise and they're selling it to, to other fans and participating. And that's a lot more 21st century of a model than the traditional licensed merchandise model, which is a $100 billion brick-and-mortar market uh, where a, a rights holder generates a few very basic pieces of artwork which they sell through a distributor who brings it to Walmart. Uh, in our minds, there's no way that's what licensed merchandising looks like over the next 20 years. And what we're saying is the way that it's going to look is it's going to be community-driven, it's going to be internet-driven, it's going to be on-demand, it's going to be real-time. So if there's an episode of, um, you know, something that drops last night, there should be merchandise and artwork based on that episode, you know, within minutes, content, the same way that there's Twitter content or Facebook content in minutes around it, that other fans should be able to consume. And so do you right now get... Um clamp down in your growth because of the rights conflicts? It's not hindering our growth incredibly so in the short term, but it will over the long term. We're protected by the DMCA. This is, it's how YouTube was able to grow and still exist. It's how Amazon is able to exist, which is that we're not, we're not responsible for what people upload to our platform unless a rights holder tells us about it, in which case we will take it down, which we do. Mm -hmm. um, that is annoying for us and it is annoying for them. And we're saying instead of creating that friction, let's like leverage the opportunity here. So it creates operational, you know, uh, it, it costs us money. It doesn't really, because our community can move so much faster than lawyers can, it, it doesn't really hinder our growth. Um, but we want we to we turn into like the bigger picture here. Which kind of T public starts to feel like a kind of a, a good brand for that to me again. Exactly. It's like it's it's standing for this thing of like the public. Gets the pu the public yeah. gets to decide. And the t-shirt is the is is the, like the canonical place where that happens. Yes. Yes. And we do so. I mean, t-shirts are our best-selling product. And historically, it's actually we we've not really built a consumer brand out of T public. We've really focused on the creator side, and we we sort of stayed a bit agnostic as the platform. And we we said, yeah, this is all about the creators. Um, and that worked, but um, I think one of the reasons we weren't able to shape a more viable consumer brand is that we weren't able to lean into the reality of what we are, which is this platform where people are being inspired and, and leveraging the culture. Mm -hmm. With these partnerships, we're able to lean into it and say, yeah, that's what this is. That's, that's what we are about. Uh, and, and I think we see a large opportunity. It's pretty, I mean, our, our parent company as well really has done no consumer branding. It's pretty rare to have businesses of our size. Yeah, how have you grown without the consumer brand side? Well, as a marketplace, we have engines for growth that are, that are organic. That's why we, I started T Public in the first place. I had a brand in Busted Tees, direct-to-consumer brand. And, you know, we were doing really uh, tight paid acquisition to grow it. But ultimately, unless we raised a bunch of money to do brand marketing, we knew that we weren't going to be able to like blow it out of the water just you know, spending really efficiently on Facebook. Like it has its limits. The point with marketplaces and TeePublic specifically is that 
because there is no inventory, um, we have a tremendous amount of content. We have 5 billion purchasable products on the platform. 5 billion? Billion. There's 5 billion things you could Holy buy. Holy shit. That content, that means we're a content aggregator. Yeah. Uh, Google is a content aggregator. They aggregate websites. Amazon is a content aggregator. They aggregate every consumer product. We aggregate, the, you know, we, we are that, but in a, you know, in a more specific verticals, which we aggregate graphic art primarily on t-shirts and home goods and these things. But we do do it at, at an aggregators type scale. All of that content in one place drives traffic through organic search because Google says, oh, wow, you know, if people are looking for XYZ, this site has it. If they're looking for ABC, they have that too. So we get a lot of organic search through the business, so we get free growth. Um, and then two, because it's a marketplace, because it's a creator community, the creators are driving sales. So we were not responsible, and that was the point of the whole, that was the thesis of the business. We are not responsible for generating demand. The community is. That got us and Redbubble, our parent, to the points that we are at. But now we're saying, well, wouldn't it be cool if we built a brand as well? Moving towards 100, but what's the path to right. 500? Exactly. That's exciting. I think that, as I said, A, because of our relative size, we're about a third of the size of our parent company. That's pretty rare. Yeah. Uh, we're also profitable. And so we're, we're driving, and, and we were profitable before they were. Yeah. Uh, so in our first fiscal year with the parent company, you know, we, we drove you know, pretty much all of the profit to, to the business. So that gives us leverage and it gives us, a, like, a, like I said, a seat at the table. Um, whereas if we had sold to Walmart, we wouldn't have had that and it wouldn't have been very fun. But because we, because we have that seat at the table, um, it's, it is more fun and interesting to then think about this larger business that we have and how to grow it. And, and that excites me as an entrepreneur because it is a new, uh, it is a new, new opportunity. It's a new challenge for me. Do you guys, you must think sometimes about what is an acquisition strategy for the business or of other D2C brands? Yeah, yeah. So if you were thinking about that, what would, like to, in today's world, what, yeah. what types of things would you be like, that's interesting? Yeah. And maybe broadly speaking, not even for your group, because forget the specifics of like your profile, but just what do you think is out there that's like, that's smart, that's compelling. For, for us to buy or just generally? Just in general. What is on my mind as I ask is, is you know, some things that we think about a lot when in, you know, talking with a potential partner is what's your differentiator? Yeah. Um, and that can exist in terms of the brand in the market. It can uh, exist in terms of their ability to grow in a way that other people can't. And we've just become very sensitive to the fact that without some type of real white space that you're occupying, it's nearly impossible to get one of these brands going. Yeah. And so just the white space in general for us is the sort of like, is the starting points. But you can think about that in lots of different ways. Um, and yeah. it depends how, like, you know, we were talking about Bombas earlier and we wouldn't necessarily have thought like, oh, socks, but like, no, performance, athleisure socks, there was a huge white space. So, I mean, I'll, I can speak about Bombas because it is, it's an example of the kinds of brands that I find interesting. Um, and it's, it's for, to, the reasons to me are very concrete yeah. and very few brands meet this criteria. Um, and the rest I find completely uninteresting. And what, what Bombas had was uh, they were in a commodity space. Um, and you can, you can think of a couple of, I mean, uh, mattresses is another, right? Casper, um, even, even uh, 
eyeglasses was, was a sort of commoditized space where it's like there's no real nobody really cares or knows like what these brands are but it's a big market um Two, it's a particular product in the case of e-commerce. Uh, this, is, this is an area where I think Casper fails um, the, the criteria. Uh, it's a particular product that has incredibly high gross margins. Um, it's incredibly easy and cheap to ship, and it inherently has high retention. So let's take Warby and Bombas, which are you know two, two winners of the, the brand consumer space. They meet all of those criteria. Eyeglasses are absurdly high margin. It's like they sell those glasses for $100. Their margins are insane on those. Super cheap and easy to ship. You're going to break your glasses. You're going to lose them. You're going to keep buying more. Same thing with socks. The, the gross margins on socks are absurd. You're going to keep buying more of them. If you, be, you know, if you become a loyal customer, you're going to keep buying more of them, even though they're giving away a pair to the homeless wherever you buy. That's how good their margins are. Their margins are still absurd. And what that means is, as Bombas or as Warby, you're going to be able to spend uh, hundreds of dollars profitably to acquire a customer. And here's the thing that brands need to understand. By and large, Facebook ads, Google ads, display, it doesn't matter if you're selling a diamond ring or a sock, it costs about the same. The, the, the variance, I mean, there's some, there's more variance in search. There's almost no variance in Facebook, depending on what you're, an impression on Facebook is an impression on Facebook. In search, there's different CPCs depending on, you know, what the keyword is, so more competitive, less, but even the variance of that is not that dramatic, which means that if you're going to be a successful e-commerce brand and successful e-commerce brands are driven by paid to a very large extent, I know of almost none that aren't, um, you're going to need enough dollar margin in your LTV to afford to compete in the market for that thing. And you're going to need a white space where there's not a lot of other people doing the exact same thing. And I think I can boil it down and say, if you don't have at least $125 to spend to acquire a customer, your brand is not going to be successful. I know of no direct-to-consumer brands that don't have over $100 to spend to acquire a customer that are successful. You could take away suitcases. That's another example. High, mar high, high dollar margin product, right? They sell, I, don't, I can't remember what those suitcases cost, but it's like, you know, three, $400 or something, which leaves them, let's say even at 50% gross margins, a couple hundred bucks to acquire a customer. Now they, ha they have a retention problem, but. One space where I see that being a slightly different in terms of the, pr the, the price point required is undergarments where the acquisition it, there is repeat purchasing great retention though there's solid margins great margins yeah I get, it's interesting because may it's like maybe over time you get to that over acquisition time threshold socks are cheap you know the, the the order value of the socks might be 40 50 bucks i'm just saying over, over time, time yeah. that they come back four times, which gives Bombas an LTV of $250 and then you're in the game. One thing that Dave said that I thought was interesting in terms of like, he was like, our our sort of operating orientation was we want to be um, at least at break even or better on first purchase for paid acquisition. Yep. And we talked about how fuzzy people get with their LTV calculations. Yes. Um, but, in, you know, they're... There is a ton of repeat purchasing going on with socks, with with um, underwear, lingerie, things like that. That's one of the issues also with Casper space. Let's say your uh, your first purchase 
allows you to spend $30, yeah. right? I'm not saying that there's not a business there. There is. There is. Um, it may just be that that is a 10 or $15 million business instead of a $100 million okay. business. So the, I want to create like a graphic of this, of like how big can your business get based on yes. how much cash you have to spend on first purchase yep. and like... And then with a little bit of room based on the category of like, what are our reasonable assumptions for repeat purchasing? And does your model inherently have any other engines for growth? Like for some reason, do you have an incredible referral model? Or in our case, you know, we do do paid and we're only, we're spending, you know, sub $20 to acquire customers, but you know, 70% of our customers we're getting for free so it doesn't matter and that and that's you know the 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 paid acquisition that we do can supplement the growth but it's not the engine for growth just having the capacity to put out email creative and social creative i mean that that that's like one big challenge and that's the, you know that that self made is solving for them when you talk to them like what would how would you define like what their pain is so it's, it, I think like for people who are below 100K yep. in, in revenue, it is they are, they are really still working on figuring out who's my customer, do I have the right product, and how in the world do I get it in front of them in any kind of way that makes this thing feel like it's, it's, there's traction, there's yep. real traction. So like the battle for traction, yep. uh, I think, you know, the like sub 100K moment for a brand. Yep. And it's the, the pain point is there are so many alluring possibilities about how to get traction. Everyone is sort of, you know, every brand that you look at is in one way or another got, has some new incredibly compelling creative or like the number of times I get like a product video from a brand that spends, you know, at least 10, if not 40K developing this product video when just like figuring out how can I spend even $500 to do an acquisition test? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, if it's not, if there's not investment, it's like that creating that type of yeah. asset is very hard. So figuring out again, it's like what to really focus on at that stage. Yeah. Um, and you know, what we, what our orientation at that moment is, listen, there's a bunch of things that you really want to have in place in terms of your email marketing, in terms of just getting a flow going on paid social to start learning and understanding where, where do you really sit with your business? Yeah. Um, and that's at the, I think the, the beginning stage, yeah. the, yeah. and in some ways it just, it continues in that there is this ongoing question of like, so what do I really need to focus on right now? So what I would say yeah. to answering that is the, the only thing, and, and we were able to do this with T Public on the artist side, and that's one of the fun things about our business and, and a way that we were able to be hyper mission aligned was we solved this for the creators on T Public who, who figured out the customer, you know, who through the model brought the customers. We didn't have to figure this out for customers, but uh, our customers were artists, so it's the same thing. You have to figure out of the customers that you have that, that are not, that's not your friends and family. Uh, it actually, I would say if you're sub 100K, it doesn't really matter. It's too early to almost even figure out like, well, you know, what's the Facebook strategy or what's, I mean, you're playing in those spaces just to like get some water flowing through the pipes, but it's really before that, 
you just need like a subset of customers who have bought your product. And then of those customers, you need to figure out, I mean, the, the, the core question that needs to be asked of them mm-hmm. is how would you feel if this product no longer existed? And it's, you know, wouldn't really care, neutral, somewhat disappointed. And like, I would be incredibly super disappointed and upset. I love this product. Mm-hmm. The only people you need to be talking to and thinking about are that group. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's it. For until, until you're at a million or, or a couple million dollars in revenue, that group takes you there. Everybody else doesn't matter. And, and the, 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 the big thing that like, you need to solve is when you say what you do or you say your thing, like, people will be like, oh, that's cool. It's like, but would you really buy it and love it? Like, love it, love it. Not just neutral, like, yeah, I suppose if that product were in front of me, like, I guess I would use it. But I mean, would you really and would you, could, could you not live without it? That's what you, you need to define who those people are. And then it's about f- building a model around them, which is like, well, where do they live and how do I acquire people like that? Those are going to be the only people who you can acquire profitably. Everybody else is where your marketing spend is wasted. And so, particularly sub a million when every dollar unfortunately matters and you're, and you, you even care about blowing five hundred or a thousand dollars, then it has to be hyper focused on that market. We just had Nick Ling on from um, Pattern Brands. He was the CEO of Gin Lane, and we we were talking about something similar. The way that he described it is, in the beginning, you have to find who are your believers, and then that will bring you to your buyers. Yeah, and it's similar to what you're yeah. describing of like who are the people who are so passionate about this thing that it means something to them. Let's say we're talking to someone right now who's at this stage 250k in revenue or 500k in revenue and they're like this sounds great how do i really do that yep how do i figure out who those people are and then how do i how do i develop a a model of them and then an acquisition strategy to get more of them so let's say that that you know quarter million dollars of revenue is generated you know by between five and ten thousand customers thousand to ten thousand customers something like that if i had five thousand customers i would probably try to have phone conversations with, you know, two to 500 of them. Uh, I would be surveying them, you know, constantly. Um, and I would be asking this question of every single person, you know, a couple months after they bought from me, like I would ask every single person, you know, this question, like, how would you feel if we took this product out of your closet or your pantry and you were never able to use it again? I would ask that of everybody and start. And, and once I had my groups of like neutrality, I'd care a little bit, I'd care a lot, and I found out who cared a lot. Um, I would, as the CEO, have a personal conversation with every single one of those people, every single one. Who are your, the... Um, Believers. Yeah. You have to have a conversation, a yeah. personal conversation with every single one of those people, A. B, I would make sure that those people um, continue to have a 20 out of 10 Airbnb, 20 out of 10 experience on my platform. I would put all of my energy into making sure that they continued to be my believers and that what they got out of our product was like ridiculous and unscalable. And then I would go look at the people who cared somewhat. And I would say, what are my believers getting that these people aren't? And I would start developing marketing to ensure that, that, that new customers generally 
we're getting what the believers got. And often what the believers are getting is some amount of understanding or some amount of value that just either inherently isn't going to be as high for other people. Like this product just happens to serve these people more than than another group. And that's really important to know because then you're like, okay, our target audience is X for real. That's it. Um, People who like could like, you know, it's like it's runners and it's not cyclists. It's runners <laughs> and it's runners all day. And we should be able to, we should be able to grow this business to five or $10 million before we think about diversifying our product set to cyclists. So because you find out it's runners, that changes the acquisition game. It changes everything. It changes your targeting on Facebook. It changes the keywords that you're bidding for on Google. It changes the way you're branding and what should be in the videos and who it's for. The, you know, the, the, the death of, an, of a brand early is, well, it's mass market. It could be for anybody. Like, no, <laughs> it, it, no way. That's awesome. I think that that's, I mean, even as I'm listening to it and thinking of how it applies to self-made, that's, that has been the ongoing evolution of the business is, is finding that sweet spot where it's like, okay, we, we do it in terms of NPS. Sure. So how likely are you to recommend this to a friend? It's like, who are our nines and tens? What's the value that we're able to be providing to them? It's what's true about them. What's different about them. It's like, well, they, this is their revenue where they, they tend to be in these types of, you know, entrepreneurship verticals or they're like, you know, you start building that profile so that you say that's the sweet spot, like screw everybody else. Adam, what's been the most important lesson you've had to learn the hard way? As the CEO or the, the founder, uh, there, there will come a time where the success of the business can no longer be uh, predicated on you. And the success of the business will, will be determined by everybody else. And uh, the job needs to be that you, you, stop, you, you stop trying to be the, uh, you know, the engine and, and you, you make everybody else the engine. Uh, and I think that is, um, I think it's hard to do for entrepreneurs who for, let's say the first four or five years of the business are the engine for growth. They, they are the hub that, you know, you are, you are the thing that makes the wheel turn. Um, but if it's, if it's going to get out of the startup phase into what you described as a company, <laughs> um, that extraction process is really difficult and you need to, you know, it happened for me in 2017. I had to completely change what I was about, you know, what I identified as being good at. (laughs) Um, And that included not doing things that I know that I knew I could do better than the people who were doing them. Uh, And it included, allowing things to fail that I could have probably made succeed um, to empower a broader group of people to grow and learn and ultimately be able to drive the business. And, and, and that that's, you know, I think that step change is what allowed us to go from sort of, let's say, you know, uh, like we were early stage startup in 14 and 15 and then like middle and 16 and 17 and then sort of, you know, matured in, you know, to 18. And now, um, I mean, it, it was that shift. What do you do to sort of get inspired? There's, I'd say there's like two, like two columns. Like one column is, is sort of, you know, closer to business, which is like, I love, you know, hearing other people's stories. I love having conversations. 
uh, about other people's journeys. You know, the work that I do as an advisor gives me access to that. My my peer group gives me access to that. Um, and that always gets my juices flowing, just just hearing, you know, things that other people are doing. Like, I, I, we, we don't do that or I haven't thought of that or that, that's not really part of my mix. Um, so that's I'm pretty easy <laughs> to be inspired just by hearing other people talk about that. The other is, um, I would say, personal growth and learning that has nothing to do with business at all. Um, and that can come through the form of, you know, learning about, you know, it, it, one, one, I would say, uh, specific cases, thought a lot about, you know, I, I've done some, you know, uh, learning about how, how ecosystems work, biological ecosystems work. And I like to read about that and apply it to business. Uh, I like to read about how artists work and what their process is, a sculptor, like what their process is. And, and like, oh, like that's actually, that's really cool how they do that. Like I'm going to apply it. Um, and then, you know, so I, th- I think that's like a, a different kind of learning that you can extract. And I mean, on a personal level, um, I have to create space. Um, I have to uh, meditate. Um, I need to use my body and I need to be creative in ways that have nothing to do with business in order to like sort of, you know, just clean everything out a little bit and, and get so, so that I'm clear. Um, and usually the inspiration doesn't come out of those moments, but it, it, it you know, sets me up to yeah. get inspired at another point. Do you meditate every day? Um, I try to, but I don't. <laughs> okay. Good book for um, reading an artist whose like methodology inspired you. The one, the one that's coming to mind is I read this, uh, I read this biography on Bob Marley, uh, who was incredibly process-driven and disciplined. I would say, in in the way that I mean, he had a rhythm for writing music that was like very. He did the same thing every single day, seven days a week. He did the same thing every single day pretty much to get himself lathered up um, like from the morning to the night into a creative space where like he could work. And I remember reading that and there's, I mean, his is, uh, I've thought about it a lot since because I've always, I mean, it's not currently possible, but I've always wanted to start a company the way that he and many artists write music, which is like, you sort of go off into the woods away from everybody else and the whole team is there living together eating together, exercising together. Um, and he, he really, he really brought like the whole group into his process that way. Um, which, which I, you know, I thought was really appealing. Uh, seeing is forgetting the name of the thing being seen. Did I tell you about this? Mm -hmm. Uh, it is, it's basically the biography for Robert Irwin. Mm -hmm. You know, his work, he's the creative director for the Dia Beacon. Yep. Got a bunch of stuff in the Dia Beacon. He, he did the garden, at the um, the Getty in LA, and was like one of the early early guys to begin developing site specific installations and art shows and things like that. And he was like LA painter in the '60s, really off the grid of what was happening with like New York art. And then he was also one of the early light guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and this book that describes his it said of the book that this. This book 
um, led more people to go into art school than any other book that you could point mm-hmm. to. And it's, so it's been around for a while. You, it's mostly him talking. It's mostly interview format. And he's talking about his journey and his evolution as an artist. It's very, uh, it's not like the Bob Marley thing you're describing of like, oh yeah, that's like that process. I get that. Mm-hmm. It was more just like, he would just wrestle with questions for a long time. Mm-hmm. And he just, very abstract. And he would just be like, yeah, I went, you know, I was just in my garage for, you know, six months and I would, I was taking a lot of naps. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, which to me, I think one of the things that was stuck with me is just how independent yeah. he was, which is another component you said earlier about how a lot of people are not actually well suited for the entrepreneurial task. And one thing is there is a level of independence um, involved in this idea of I'm going to try to create value where it doesn't yet exist. You, you know, a peer group is super helpful. Um, Getting inspired by other people, it's not its not um, the same as the sort of solo artist, but there is a level of independence. Yeah, I, I mean, that resonates. I agree with that. And I mean, I think it's something that, yeah, the Bob Marley example is sort of bad because it is, it's, it's almost so similar, but... There are uh, there are the the artistic process is is so independent. Generally, they're generally working by themselves. There's another um, uh, biography I read about uh, Michael Heiser who who does these like crazy land art installations. Like his art is is built into uh, the landscape in epic epic ways. He he's built this entire essentially like. Mayan city out in in the southwest uh, that's that's currently there that nobody's like seen um <laughs> and and he's he's just out in the desert for he's been out in the desert you know not completely alone but roughly for 40 years wow um building building this city of art um and what state is it in i think it's in nevada uh i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure it's in nevada it's called the city um and you know, one day we're all going to get to see it. <laughs> it's going to be really cool. But yeah, there is something solitary, and I think that the, the the lesson for me when I generally when I read about the way that artists that that independence, or the way they work, or taking naps, is artists are so good at recognizing they need to give themselves space. Yeah space to that the, the creative process that the lesson that i always take is the creative process inherently requires a lot of space if you're scheduled you know every minute an hour of the day like no, nobody would nobody would go about the process of creating art that way <laughs> you just wouldn't and and so you know i was saying how entrepreneurship is such a creative process it just happens to be that business is the medium then that space has to be creative the way that space space for an artist is created where you're just like, I'm just going to be with myself for a little while um, and see what generates. You know, we call that, you know, in a sort of very functional, tactical way at Tee Public. You know, one of the books that we'll have people read is Deep Work, you know, which is which basically is encouraging people to block periods of time, many hours uh, of their week to just do deep work where they're not interrupted by Slack and email and all these things. Everything is shut down and you're just able to get into some sort of flow state. Um, but I, I think, I think you're right. I mean, that, that, those, I'll read that book. You know, there are a few instances of success that you can point to where the, the grind becomes heroic. Yeah. Um, and usually those are moments of intense product market fit. Yeah. Um, 
but most of my friends who I see running companies successfully or starting companies successfully do create this level of space that is, I think it's a reflection in part of, there's got to be a confidence in order to do that because it's, you're not doing in that space and you don't quite know what the result is going to be. Um, and so you have to have a level of trust that you're going to land in a good place, even though you don't quite start off knowing where that place is going to be and you're not fully focused on getting there. It, it, there's, there's two different things of like the, here's space for deep work where you know what you're doing, which I think of as like, mm-hmm. you know, like our engineers block off time and it's necessary for them. And we've talked about sort of having like a whole afternoon at Selfmade every single week, always have this like no Slack, no email. It's Wednesdays. It's from two to five, no meetings, no Slack. We have to do that. Um, but that's one form of this, which is uh, like flow towards a project you got to do. Mm-hmm. And then there's another thing, which is I think a bit more of like the creative, what is next? What's the visioning moment? That's also by what's even more, how do you create the, the self-trust or the confidence that that space is going to end up being valuable? Yeah, I think when I was, so in 2017, when I was going through that period of change where I had to become, uh, you know, the leader that the business needed for the future, I was, that's when I started getting coached because I knew that, that like, you know, it was going to be hard for me to do this. And we started mapping out, you know, my coach and I, uh, you know, the ways that I would, would extract myself from all these things that I had been doing um, and, who would, and who would do it and how would that happen. So we kind of came up with that operational plan and we were like, can this be done? I was like, yeah, okay. And then I was like, but like, what am I going to do? And he, he said, um, you're going to figure it out and it's going to be the most valuable thing that's like ever happened to the company. Yeah. He's like, you'll figure it out. And 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 I mean and, and that's completely true. Like if you if it's your business, and you know what, whatever whatever space you create for yourself, um, it it just, it just it will create value because because like you know it's going to allow you to get to mental spaces that you're, you're truly blocking yourself from. All of our big moves over the past year that have been really positive. They've usually come from me getting enough space to realize that we that we that we needed to make a change in order to get to where we were trying to get to that was going to be uncomfortable. Um, that was going to either be uncomfortable for the team or uncomfortable for some of our for some of our customers. Um, it was going to require us making a, a, a change in who we were. Yeah, a, a power question that I'll ask, you know, people I'm advising is when was the last time you sat down for six hours uninterrupted, completely by yourself, and just thought about the business for six hours straight? And the answer is usually never. Right. Never done that. Yeah. And I'm like, try it. Try it. <laughs> it, it it'll blow your mind <laughs> what you could come up with in six hours by yourself. I'm gearing up for that moment right now, actually. So cool. Thank you so much for doing this. Do you want to get lunch? Yeah. Great. That's it for part two. We're really excited to level up self-made stories in 2020 with great guests, additional content, and even better episodes. So stay tuned. Share us, love us, follow us. You can get extended show notes on our blog, blog blog.selfmade.co, as well as highlights and additional footage on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Our handle is selfmade wherever you go. Till next time.